this. Okay, we are live, episode 144. Paul Vogue, Ora Bora, Lewis Condon, Lewis Condon, uh, Pair of Commerce, welcome to the show. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Thanks, Mark. Paul, let's do it. Ora Bora, what's it all about and when did it start? Ourobora is a craft sparkling water made from herbs, fruits, and flowers. So think LaCroix, Waterloo, Polar, but give the sparkling water differentiated flavors, better ingredients, and a killer brand. Uh, we sold our first can in November of 2019. Beautiful. And where are you from? Where, where did this originate? I live in San Francisco. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Okay. You know I'm in Marin. Um, okay. So you're in San Francisco. Did it originate there? Was it just yourself? I mean, were you just down partying in the marina and doing just being being wild and weird? Uh, sorry, <laughs> just flashbacks. Um, uh, go ahead. To give us no, a story so, Yeah, I, I, I didn't know this at the time. I was actually living outside Boulder, Colorado back in 2019. And at the time, I thought, man, it's so easy to start a food and beverage company because I kept running into people that could help me find cans or ingredients or a food scientist. Now I know that's like living in West Hollywood and wanting to be a stunt double. Of course, it's just like the best place to live for starting a uh, better for you CPG business. So we were living in Boulder. My wife and co-founder, Maddie, kept her job. I quit my job to do this. As a result, she got a new job in San Francisco. So we moved here uh, very shortly thereafter, at the end of 2019. Okay, good story. Uh, she moved to San Francisco. Is she in tech? I know this is totally off the top. She, she's actually, no, she is a copywriter and designer. So she is now our creative director, but at the time was doing it for a couple different software companies. Okay, cool. So where did you go first? So you had an idea, you had the concept. Uh, you wanted to get in the space. You did mention a low low barrier of entry is what I like to say. People are like, how did it, how yeah. what's going on over there? Uh, that's for another episode. A low barrier of entry, folks. That's the uh, that's the, what the gold rush was in combination with all that money that wanted to come in here, uh, which now seems to be leaving. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, because you can make a cookie in your house and then you go sell it, you know, down at the farmer's market. And then yeah, anyway. Uh, so go get, where did that sort of, how did you get that going? And where did you go first? Like, did you, were you playing around in the kitchen? Then did you take it to a commercial kitchen? Lay that out for us. Yeah, you got it. So I, I was working at a small investment firm that had a fully stocked pantry. So we had kettle potato chips, Jenny's ice cream, Justin's peanut butter. And it felt like, okay, we have all of these better for you artisanal brands in what used to be commoditized categories. And then we were all drinking LaCroix sparkling water. So something didn't add up. We have a, a litany of brands and other categories, but the thing we consumed the most at that office was sparkling water. So we're all drinking it, but none of us are enjoying it. Highest velocity, lowest reviews. What if we made an artisanal version of this? That was the idea. So we started in our kitchen with a soda stream, probably forced plastic cups into 80 people's faces out of our soda stream. Try this, try this, try this, et cetera. Um, and then we found a tiny co-packer in Boulder, Colorado, and the ball started rolling. So that, that was the beginning. Okay. And so again, like sort of where, where now, where do you go to commercialize this? Who did you of call? Course. How did you, how did you call? What was the first call? How did it navigate to the second call? How did you end up in a building? What did that look like? So first of all, I, I'll say there's some humor to this. We were using uh, essential oils to make the drink at first. Like I'll say we have very out there flavors. So our most popular flavor is lavender cucumber followed by cactus rose. And I thought, oh, great. If we want to use lavender, like we, we don't want to make our own lavender extract. Let's just use this lavender oil. Um, the first call was to a food scientist in Boulder who used to work at Coca-Cola. 
And his first comment was, I hope you haven't been drinking very much of this. At the time, I'd probably have been drinking like a gallon of sparkling water a day because I was trying to get the recipes right. And I was like, oh, no, no, I've been drinking a lot of this. He's like, okay, yeah, you should definitely go to a doctor. These are not meant to be consumed. Let's actually commercialize. So the first call was, let's make this legal and safe to drink. And of course, at that point, we hadn't sold a single can. This was just me using myself as a lab rat. Um, the call after that was luckily he knew a small co-packer that was interested, that was already doing some coffee stuff that wanted to have line time to sparkling water companies or other kind of non-caloric drinks. Um, from there, it was a food show in Boulder, naturally Boulder's tabletop show. Um, we had a thousand cans in the world. And thankfully for me, a Whole Foods buyer was present at the show and that got the ball rolling. Fair. Um, I want to almost go back so that people have an understanding of this. You, you made that first phone call and that person, again, had to have been engaged in CPG of some sort, right? Had some answers for you right away. And then, of course, had a connection for you as far as a, a co-packer, which a lot of people, I just posted about co-packers and, and or self-manufacturing. Check it out if you want to. Uh, there's actually a lot of really good comments in there. Um the when when you walk in there and again this is where the opportunities come or they don't right line times are available they're not it's a small co-packer it's a large one they want to you know here's the their costs um they want to figure things out for you oh wait you want to do what mm, we've never really done that before but i can figure that out like there's it's a spectrum of what you're going to find out there um and so maybe give us like that first six months while you're in there, how much did you have to be involved and how much did they take the reins as far as getting it commercialized properly? Yeah. So there's, you know, co-packers only make money on long-term clients, but they obviously, they only have long-term clients who start as short-term small clients. So they're all making a bet. They're not just making a bet on your product. They're, they're kind of making a bet on you, like your ability to fundraise, your ability to be a long-term client, your ability to sell this product. They need you to be an effective entrepreneur in order to say yes. I'll say for this particular co-packer, he was, he was like very honest of, hey, these first couple of runs, like you're going to have to be there. I'll say those first thousand cans, myself and a 17-year-old kid named Connor were like, we're taking the cans and spinning them uh, to get labels on and sending them down the line. So we were extremely, extremely involved, duct tape, cardboard boxes, building pallet formations, et cetera. As we went down the line, yeah, he got more and more involved, i.e. the guy running the facility because he knew, okay, our invoices are getting paid. This is a legitimate client. So that is always a chicken and egg thing because you don't have any sales because you don't have any products. So you need to convince them, hey, I'm going to be able to get this into grocery stores. And certainly it helps when you have a big banner like Whole Foods because the co-packer can sleep better at night knowing you're not about to go out of business. They're going to get their bills paid. Well, let's not go that far. Yeah. Um, let's not go that far. It's actually the exact uh, opposite sometimes. But uh You'll understand that sentiment if you understood that sentiment. Um, I, I, let me lay it then. Let me unpack that for a second. The fact that somebody has a retail partnership uh, uh, does not mean that they're going to be around. In fact, uh, it's it's sometimes even more dangerous, folks. Uh, you'll you can layer that one though any way that you want to. <laughs> um, so let's move on then, as far as you being in Whole Foods. So that's your first. You're in there. Uh, it, it was in uh, which which region? This is in the Rockies. Okay, Rockies. So you got your first region. So you're in 40 plus stores there. Um, and what does that look like? Uh, it was a three SKUs. Um, you did, what five did you, SKUs. Oh, five SKUs. So you're on yeah. shelf. You're seeing it. Um, margins working at that time? Or did you have to, eh, okay, I'm going to have to figure this one out long term. Talk to the co-packers well with pricing and things like that. This is also in what year? Pre-COVID? 
This is pre-COVID. Yeah, this is end of 2019 all the way up till March. Funny enough, is when we were producing the product. We were supposed to launch on the shelf till, uh, March of 2020 at Whole Foods. That actually didn't happen till late June. So we produced the product pre-COVID, sold the product post-COVID. Fair. Uh, that happened too. There was some stuff that was going on early there, but you're also lucky because some stuff got really turned totally. upside down. So, so okay, finally, you're on shelf now. Um, what does that look like? Give me maybe first six months of what that first on shelf looked like. And then maybe what was, what, what happened post that? Maybe was there another um, sort of regional player that came on board? Yeah. So for those first six months pre COVID uh, post that trade show, I was driving around, I have a Subaru in San Francisco and pack it full of cases and just drive to stores, try to sell the product, merchandise the product. And at that point I knew nothing about channels of trade, gross smart. You know, I, I was making every mistake in the book selling things to the wrong stores at the wrong price, not keeping their margin in mind. And then I was so surprised when we ended up on certain shelves for $4 and other shelves for $2 um, and quickly learned, okay, there's a specific natural channel store we need to sell to. And I'm not as interested in the corner store bodega or convenience of any sort. So that, that was the first six months. Once we realized, okay, Whole Foods opens doors, let's go after Sprouts, Fresh Time, Oliver's, Lazy Acres, Bristol Farms, all of the big natural players in California. Um, that, that's what those that first 12 months looked like was quickly learning, okay, there is a set channel we should sell to. Let's only sell to this one channel. And talk to me about that one channel. By the way, that comment about your Subaru in San Francisco, I thought was really funny. I yeah. just, <laughs> anyway, you have to be here. Um, okay, so... Um, <laughs> Getting back to this, uh, g give me sort of uh, what what that looked like. You know, again, you're you've now found what it is that you just described as sort of a market fit, or you think it yep. was. What is that? What what does that mean to you? We felt like the comment I made about working at that uh, company with the fully stocked fridge. I, I I realized, hey, I'm drinking a lot of sparkling water. I personally drink like ten cans a day, which I know is on the higher end, but still, most people are drinking more than a couple of cans a day. Could I find a consumer that also felt like they wanted more exciting flavors, better ingredients that tasted more natural and were willing to pay extra for it? And of course, that sounds like a natural consumer. And that seemed to be the case. Pre-COVID, during that six months, I don't know, I probably did 20 or 30 demos around the Bay Area. And yeah, I, I would run into our, our ideal consumer that said, wow, this tastes so much better than LaCroix or this tastes so much better than X. Um, and, and that was kind of exactly what we wanted. Hey, are you willing to pay a huge premium? for a product that you think is hugely better, you know, greatly better than the alternative. So that, that's how we I would have used hugely also. You should have seen me in school. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, um, let, the, the Bay Area, again, I'd like to kind of unpack so people really, the Bay Area, everybody should understand sort of the demo here. Like um, it's a little bit higher net worth, um, uh, disposable income, things like that. That all comes into play about market fit. Who is the customer? Like, I'm just guessing, is, it, is your product $3 on shelf? 199. Oh, see, that's not actually that's not bad. Um, and, and LaCroix, just so I know, what what is that? Is it a dollar fifty? Dollar. It's a dollar. Okay, so th th it's a that's a big spread though. Again, yeah. when you're talking drinks, and and I like to always say it's like like I'm water, right? And yeah. and this is like from my tap water. Yeah, um, right. I'm not all like frilly, and I'm here in the Bay Area, folks. Like like it's all good. You can make fun of me later. Um, like I just I, that's all. I mean. And so when I think about that, when I'm like, yeah, it's this guy's drinking ten of those. 
again, it's that's that's that one end of the spectrum. And then I can see people drinking like two or three um, uh, Lacroix. Um, there is one thing I have my my fridge, which is Spindrift. I'm like a big fan. Yeah. I I drink like maybe like a half a can, like especially at night. If I I'm, I wouldn't say I get like sweet tooth, but it's just more like I'm really thirsty. I need something cold. Uh, you know, it's a little a little hit of something. So I, I totally get this the sentiment. I also understand the spectrum. Then it's what you're diving deeper into, which is let me find that person. There's right. a person who 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 buys a, a, the box of Lacroix, whatever, and drinks like two or three a day. Maybe that's the average, right? Let me get that person made because you only need them to really buy one. That's right. You understand about the velocity? Like you just get ten customers inside that store who want to buy it, right? One a day. That's like a gigantic. That's it. Yeah, that's so, it. Yeah. Um, again, it's, now now let's sort of move fast forward. So post COVID, now we're out of. Let's get into like late twenty one. Sure. Going into this year, what did the business look like then? Yeah, end of twenty twenty one, we were in about two thousand stores. Um, so twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one was just rinse and repeat, constantly trying to sell into new stores. Natural channel moving into conventional by the end of twenty one. Um, I I learned a lot. Like one. Yeah, we have flavors that are maybe too weird and flavors that were maybe too normal. Like where is actually our niche in this like very huge segment of sparkling water? Um, and then secondarily, we went from stores buying just because I was harassing them from my Subaru to stores buying because they were seeing our data at other stores, which that's like a huge graduation of rather than you needing to be in person or on Zoom for every single sales call. Being able to just send a graph, like that is scale right there. You can scale based off that data. So I'd say that was probably the graduation happened fourth quarter of 2021. Very cool. Uh, he mentioned the Subaru again, folks. You, you, if you see him driving around, dude, you better stop him. Um, <laughs> um, okay. And let's just get into the now then. So uh, to, to close up, give, give us sort of a snapshot. Um, uh, by the way, where are you in San Francisco? I'm in the outer sunset. Outer sunset. Okay, cool. Um, and, uh, give us sort of what does the next 12 months look like? Yeah. Today we are in 4,000 stores. We'll probably end this year, hopefully in somewhere between five and 6,000. Um, 12 months from now, one, a huge emphasis on, we have a couple of new citrus based SKUs. That was a big learning. This is actually, I'm drinking one right now, elderflower grapefruit. Um, the other one is ginger Meyer lemon. We just launched nationwide at Sprouts, um, pushing into some more conventional stores, pushing into multi-serve at a lot of the stores that we've been in for a while. Obviously, most sparkling water is bought in a multi-pack format and continuing to make weird flavors for our website. So about 30% of our business is direct to consumer to the sparkling water aficionados across the country or sparkling water addicts. In my case, you want weird different flavors. We make a weird different flavor every 60 days. Very cool. I like you, man. Thank you. Of course. Um, Good stuff, Paul. And then uh, we are moving over, Lewis. Pair Commerce, give it to us. Pair Commerce. Yeah, we are an ad tech startup. We've been around probably about 18 months. Our why, big hairy mission is change how brands are thinking about e-commerce, where right now it's Amazon and it's D2C, but the world is changing where you can strategize and drive media and real estate on your website to go to retail e-commerce, actually. Uh, hasn't been possible before because of two reasons, shoppability and data. One, there's too many retailers. They're too regional. They're too small. You can't manage relationships with each with all of them. If you could, you don't know inventory. So why would you spend money to send them to an out of stock or something like that? And so you did have inventory. Then you still don't know when they bridge over what's happening. Are they adding to cart? Are they 
purchasing, um, by what, how a retailer's performance, geos, audience platform, all of these things that, you know, a D2C company can do, uh, hasn't been available. And that's what we, we solved. So uh, on the shopability side, we can take any UPC, uh, scan the internet and find every retailer.com that it's available on for purchase. Uh, we have about four or five different shopability tools, uh, store locator, kind of the easy one, uh, retail landing pages, uh, embeddable, embeddable shopability, so like shoppable widgets uh, on PDPs or recipes, and then direct to cart links if you really want to start driving velocity to specific retailers. Uh, and then uh, on the data side, we partner with about three dozen retailers, three of the top six grocery included, uh, to give those insights of uh, basically full funnel attributable sales data, uh, not any first party, but we know what happens mid campaign. So you can use those to actually start improving your ROAS like you would on a D2C, measure copy, measure creative, understand retailer by geo, by audience, by platform, uh, and really start kind of understanding, uh, yeah, retail e-commerce and your retail e-com shoppers. And then our secret sauce, last thing, is we take all of these, convert all of these events, and then we can integrate with any of your ad platforms uh, so you can start building custom digital audiences of your retail shoppers. So that's the full D2C playbook. You can uh, retarget, build lookalikes, optimize campaigns for conversion, and do you know everything that you can on the D2C side, but uh, with retail e-com. So we're trying to build the third pillar of e-com as retail, uh, working with Liquid Death, General Mills, Olipop, Henkel, SC Johnson, uh, and then yeah, Walmart, Target, Ahold, Price Chopper, Spartan, Nash, and kind of continuing to build that out uh, on both sides. So cool. Uh, love to talk with anyone about it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Lewis's information pair commerce is there. Paul and his Subaru's information. Oh, I mean, Aura Bora is down there. San Francisco 49ers. We got this. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Yeah, I said it. All right. Be good, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.